Well, I'm going to get a little personal today. One of the joys of my life is that almost every time I get up to stand in front of a congregation and speak and teach about the Bible, uh, there are students of mine in the room. Um, Brandon's here now. You know, he's in my class right e even now. Um, and there were some, there were, uh, Danny was here in the first service. Uh, but even more often lately, uh, there are former students of mine in the room. And there were a few in the first service, but there are lots here and now. Uh, raise your hand if you sat in my classroom one day. Ever ever did. Okay, so there's several in here. And, uh, and, and it's just it's one of the joys of my life uh, to see you grown up, married well, um, and doing your lives in, a, in an adult way that honors God. And, uh, and to think that I was there when you were just little punks trying to learn how to get it right, you know, it excites me. Uh, and uh, it excites me to see you all grown up. And yet there's this mystery. We've got other teachers in the room where there's this thing that happens when they're in the classroom and you kind of can imagine their lives as grown-ups, but you never really can totally get it right because they, you know, they'll surprise you. Um, and sometimes they'll surprise you in very negative and tragic ways, and sometimes they'll su surprise you in, in delightful ways. And so I thought I'd tell a couple stories. Uh, I've been doing this a long time. I had a teaching career in South Carolina uh, before I retired from teaching the first time and then came down several years later and started teaching here in Florida. So most of these names will be very remote to you on purpose. Um, uh, some of the, the happier ones will be closer to home. But my first year teaching was 1981. And I was a 20-year-old, and there were 18-year-olds in my French 2 class. So those students are in their mid-40s now. Uh, and yet they were kids in my class when I started teaching. I, I, I Googled one of them because I knew he was a... Uh, I'd probably find him. His name was Andy. And Andy was the first of many students I've had in class who was smarter than me. And when you're a young teacher, that's a little intimidating and scary. I've learned to deal with that over the years, that that's, you know, teach a lot of kids, it's just going to happen. Uh, but at first, I thought it was kind of a failure of mine. But uh, Andy was brilliant. And uh, he's a professor now at the University of Mississippi, an English professor, and he's a science fiction writer. And the reason there's an article on him on the web is that he... Uh, He's an award-winning science fiction writer. I can't remember the exact name of the awards. Science fiction, the science fiction community names them like Nebula Awards or something like that, Galaxy Awards. But anyway, he's good at it. Um, and so, uh, and he's married. And so, I mean, he's he's in mid forties. He's a uh, he's a uh, he's done well. Another guy that's pretty old for to be one of my kids. This guy named Cliff. He was in my French two class the first year I taught. Uh, we run into each other all the time now at family reunions. Uh, Cliff's sister Robin married Donnie Paget, and Donnie's little sister Gina married me. And so now we run into Cliff a lot uh, when we're going to Thanksgiving things or, or summer reunions where we're having a picnic together. And uh, I've apologized to Cliff several times for the the things I did wrong when I was learning how to teach that first year. And he he's assured me he's totally forgiven me, and I don't need to quit or keep apologizing anymore. But there are more. It's sad to me that, that the stories I remember the best, the ones that stand out most vividly, are the ones that ended tragically. Um, several of my students have died already. And that seems weird to me that I would have, you know, I can name five or six who aren't still alive. Uh, Jonathan uh, and Todd committed suicide. Uh, different episodes, different states. Um, Jeff was allergic to bees. And... Uh, uh, Julie, I think, had a heart problem. And Travis was found in his car on the side of the road. And the police weren't sure what the cause was exactly, uh, whether substance abuse was involved. I only read the one article about it, so I didn't see the follow-up report. But uh, he was in his 20s. 
uh, when that happened. And so some of the more memorable ones are tragic. Some of my students from South Carolina uh, did some hard time for being on the wrong side of the law. Uh, Troy had a substance abuse problem and got caught selling cocaine and, and did some time behind bars. And Andy got drunk at a Fourth of July party and was convicted of vehicular homicide because he killed two people at a uh, stop by running a stop sign. And uh, there's some sad stories like that closer to home that I, I won't tell them because they are closer to home. But then there are other stories that are that are kind of more fun to think about. Uh, uh, Eric uh, owns a construction company in Columbia, Paris. Uh, this, this is a guy named Paris. Uh, he owns a sports bar in Columbia. A SEAL was a paralegal in Columbia. When I worked there as an insurance adjuster, she would call me sometimes to settle claims, and that was kind of cool uh, to get to talk to her. Um, Hank's a doctor. That's pretty cool. And then several uh, are involved in ministry. Uh, and then this is where it's going to get closer to home, maybe some names you'll recognize. Uh, Mike uh, works with youth at another church. Uh, Lisa in Columbia, South Carolina, publishes an eschatology newsletter. Um, Amy in North Carolina is a pastor's wife. Uh, uh, not an Amy you know. but uh, And uh, Sarah just got back from Honduras. Um, Sarah DiPietro Smith taught Sunday school at the first service. Jared leads our youth group. Uh, uh, David runs uh, or uh, helps start a, uh, uh, the Love Alliance. And I don't want to leave anybody out. Uh, Hades out saving lives. Uh, uh, and uh, Stephanie helped plant this church and, and leads worship, you know, here, helps lead worship here every Sunday. And so, uh, oh, Nick, you guys know Nick, he leads worship up in Ohio somewhere. Uh, and, so, uh, and so the point I want to make is, with this little trip down memory lane, is you never know. When you see him sitting in the room, you might have guesses, but if you think back to those classrooms, Aren't there kids you thought would turn out differently in both directions? And it's like, boy, what in the world happened to them? And then the other side is like, you know, I've, uh, there were people who seemed kind of obstinate back in the day who, uh, who seem very open uh, today. And so you can see it going in both, both directions. The point, of, the point of all this is that, you know, as I look back on it, just like a football coach with a winning or losing team or a president with the economy, I think a teacher can look back or a pastor can look back and take too much credit or too much blame. And, and for, you, for you students, obviously, you had many more influences than one teacher one hour a day in your life. And there was a whole lot of things impacting your lives. And of all those things impacting your lives, though, the point of, I think, this parable to me today is that it's more about the soil than it is about the sower. It's real easy for me to be like the football coach of the losing team and take too much blame when it goes poorly or the football coach of the winning team and take too much credit when it goes well. Did I teach Jared better than I did Troy? Actually, I probably did because it was several years later. But, <laughs> but is it because I taught Jared better than I taught Troy that it's worked out better for him? No, it's because Jared was different soil. And, and so... Some of that's God's sovereign work, and some of that is our own response to, to what God plants in us. So let's take a look back. At, uh, let's go back to the Bible. Mark 1.22, we read this one last week, says, The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as teachers of the law. And one of the tools Jesus used was parables. And parables are extended metaphors descriptive of a common object or action to illustrate a spiritual truth. And we're going to learn today it's actually 
what this, the parable of the four soils is actually an allegory. This is a little bit technical. I doubt you really care too much about this. It's actually an allegory rather than a parable. What's the difference? There are several points of comparison, not just one. Most of the time when Jesus tells a story, a parable, there's only one thing that connects from the commonplace to the spiritual. Here there are three or four or six things uh, that connect from the commonplace to the spiritual. That's what makes it an allegory. This parable, oftentimes called the parable of the sower, but I'm going to call it the parable of the four soils because it's more about the soil than it is the sower. That's the point, is that there are four different kinds of soil. You find it three times in the New Testament. You find it Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, kind of nod your head if you know the phrase synoptic gospels. Okay, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the synoptic gospels, and what that means is that they're very similar. They're very much like each other. John is different. One of these kids is doing his own thing. John wrote a gospel that was not like Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you find lots of overlap. Uh, a lot of Bible historians think they, they use some common sources, like maybe there was a source that uh, had some of the sayings of Jesus. Um, the prevailing theory is that Mark wrote his gospel first, and both Matthew and Luke used Mark's gospel and then expanded on that in their, as they were writing their gospels. How can it be that this scripture, the, these, these, this New Testament, is the word of God, and yet he used the individual personalities of the writers to, 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 make it, to make the biography of Jesus different four different ways. It, I'm not sure I can explain how it can be, but I believe that it is. I believe that the Holy Spirit inspired these men and gave us a book that is, is all the things Paul said it was. It's, it's God-breathed. It's uh, profitable for doctrine and teaching and reproof and all those things. And yet I think if you look deeply, you can find the personalities of the writers in there. And you can find that they had different purposes for including the stories in their Gospels, where they did, the way they did. And sometimes they tell the story slightly differently. Parable of the, sowers, parable of the Four Soils is pretty similar in all three Gospels, but you'll see some slight differences if you look closely. One of the things as we go through this parable series to look for over and over again, you'll hear me say this several weeks, Put yourself in the position of the people who are listening to Jesus and ask this question. How does this story have a surprise ending? What were the expectations of the listeners? And then how did it end differently that would surprise us and teach us something about the kingdom? I'll go ahead and tell you the answer to that one. Jewish people who were listening to Jesus and wondering if he was the Messiah were surprised to hear of the limited success of his message. He tells about four people, four groups of people. One group responds well. The other three groups don't respond well. What kind of Messiah were the Jewish people expecting? They were expecting a military Messiah. They were expecting an apocalyptic smackdown where the enemies of God are destroyed. Kind of like what we're expecting with the second coming, right? Jesus coming on a white horse and the armies of God, the host of heaven behind him. And there's this big apocalyptic end of the world as we know it. And, and all of God's people, are, are, are there's gonna, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, right? Well, that's what the Jewish people 2,000 years ago were expecting the Messiah to be like the first time. And to hear that you know, three out of four aren't going to buy, that was a surprise to them. And it helped them to understand or as we read it, and the gospel writers included it in their accounts, it helps us to understand what's going wrong. Wait a second, the Messiah's coming. Shouldn't we all be bowing down? Shouldn't the Romans be getting out of Palestine? And, and, and yet 
Jesus explained, no, that's not the way it's going to look this time. So let's look at the five different audiences. There, there's Jesus talking to his hearers, and they're, you know, he's in the lake, on the boat, talking to people on the beach. And these are, you know, it's a beachside fishing community, probably some fishermen, some farmers, just regular folks from 2,000 years ago listening to the message. But they're mostly Jewish people wondering if this guy's their Messiah. And then Mark is writing, includes this story in his gospel, and he's probably the first gospel writer chronologically. Uh, most historians, it's, some, of these, some of this is speculation, but most, the prevailing opinion is that he wrote his gospel in Rome around the time Peter was executed, either just before or just after. And because of internal evidence, we believe that Mark's gospel was written to a church that had been persecuted and failed under that persecution. Why do we think that? More than any other gospel writer, Mark tells stories about the disciples failing, about um, he, he, the other gospel writers tend to show a little more honor to the 12 disciples. But Mark includes in more embarrassing detail stories about them sort of not staying up in the garden, turning and running when the guards come. Um, Mark kind of lays it out how at times the disciples, the 12 disciples weren't very dependable at times, they, they, they couldn't be counted on. And why would he include this more than the other gospel writers? It looks like he was trying to encourage a church that had failed under persecution and encourage them that, look, Jesus restored Peter. Jesus used these 12 despite their weaknesses and their failings to communicate the gospel. It's easy to see how Mark could have used those kind of stories to encourage his readers. Matthew was written after Mark. We think to a Jewish Christian audience, uh, a, a church that was becoming increasingly Gentile, and, and one of the most likely theories is he was writing to the church at Antioch. If you look at the book of Matthew, this, this story, uh, this parable of the four soils, is smack dab in the middle. He has a collection, it's called really a sermon in parables, eight, seven or eight in a row, and they mostly began after the parable of the four soils with this line, the kingdom of God is like this. And seven different times, the kingdom of God is like this, it's like that, it's like this, it's like that. And this is right after Jesus has an encounter with the Pharisees, where they reject him. They, they not only reject him, like we don't believe his teachings, but they over-the-top reject him. Remember what the Pharisees said about him? He must be from Satan. And Jesus tells this parable, I think, as a commentary on his rejection by the Pharisees. Why do the Pharisees reject me? Hard soil. They're, Satan removed the seed from them. Luke is perhaps the last of, those, of the synoptic gospels. I think John came last of all. Uh, the gospel of Luke is actually volume one of a two-volume history written by Luke. Luke and Acts are a collective work that go together. He wrote them both. Luke is the biography of Jesus, the gospel of Luke, and the book of Acts is also by Luke, and it's his history of the early church. And remember, Luke is part of the story in the book of Acts. He traveled with Paul, and several times you'll read in the book of Acts that Luke's writing about Paul and Silas doing this, Paul and Timothy doing that. But there are several times in the book of Acts where Luke writes, we did this. We went to this place. Luke is in the action. He's with Paul, as Paul sometimes as Paul's going around and planting churches. And it looks like Luke wrote his gospel and the book of Acts directed towards those churches that Paul planted to kind of explain to him what the status quo is like. And again, this parable of the sowers would help explain if you're in a church 2,000 years ago 
and you see some people listening, some people falling away, some people starting off strong and finishing weak. Luke's inclusion of this, this story in his gospel would help to explain some of what's going on. And then finally, the Holy Spirit to us. You know, 2,000 years later, after this story was first told, what's it mean? What's, what possible application? We don't have any farmers in the room. Um, it doesn't scat. I don't think we do. Uh, scatter and seed is something kind of easy to picture, but what does that mean in our lives? And yet I think it does have application for our lives. I believe that in the room we have sowers and in the room we have soil. In fact, I think most of us are both, both soil and sowers. So let's take a look at what kind. This is right after Jesus told this story. This is when the disciples said, hey, why are you teaching us this way? Why are you teaching us in parables? And that's what last week's message was about. Jesus explained, some are getting it, some aren't. Um, you've been blessed by giving the keys to the understanding the secrets of the kingdom. And then he went on to lay it out for them. More than most of the parables we're going to study, this one Jesus tells them exactly what every part's about. So let's read it. This is Mark 4, starting with verse 13. Then Jesus said to them, Don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? The farmer sows the word. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Verse 16. Others, like seed sown on rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the work, they quickly fall away. Um, I'll stop here to make this comment. I heard a rumor once that I'm kind of known as an unemotional person, which is uh, sort of surprising me. I have a full range of emotions. Allow me to demonstrate. This is me uh, jumping for joy, and and this is how this is what it looks like when I'm depressed, and uh, this is what it sounds like when I'm you know deliriously excited, and uh, and I've got the full range. It's just a little more nuanced, so that you have to be looking closer to to know. I, I have them all, just my display of them is a little harder to read sometimes. But the point of that is this. I, I believe that God gave us a full range of emotions and that real men get to use them all and real women get to use them all. But I've had, if you've been in churches for years or decades, some of you, you've all, I think, had this experience where you meet somebody who is just a ball of fire. And then two months, six months, two years later, where are they? And so there's a and in, in, in many of us, and me for sure, there's this reticence to jump on the flame until I kind of see where it's going. And I'm all for, I mean, I, I, sometimes I feel like we've swung too far the other way. I don't want to be crunchy, don't want to be crusty, don't want to be stuck in my ways. Um, but I also don't want to be too quick to jump on the next big Christian fad when really discipleship is a lifetime walk of obedience to Christ. And it's not measured by my volume or how high I bounce. It's measured by how obedient I am to Jesus. And so that does excite me, though. Um, And the idea of facing Jesus and hearing him say, well done, makes me very joyous. And that's what I'm working for. And so there's just... My expression of joy just comes off a little different, I think, than, than yours. And I'm not trying to stifle you if you're emotional. What I'm saying is that'll get you so far, and obedience will take you the rest of the way. Commit, commitments will. So let's read on. Verse 18. Still others, like seed sown among thorns, hear the word, 
But the worries of life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. And then finally, the good soil. Others, like seeds sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop. 30, 60, or even 100 times what was sown. So you can see why I call this one an allegory. What's Jesus comparing here? The seed is plainly the word of God. The sower is anyone who spreads the word. And that would include many people in this room. Spreading the word in any way would make you a sower. The soils would include absolutely everybody in the room. It's different kinds of people who hear the word based upon their different responses. Now, let me give a little warning here about parables. It's very common to take a story like this and try to make it say things that it doesn't say. Uh, the, the story, Jesus didn't say anything about plowing or doesn't say anything about weeding. But can you picture how you could stretch this parable and make it a sermon about that? Well, you got to plow up your hearts because your hearts are hard and we got to get in there and plow them up and break them up and bring you to tears and then you'll be ready to receive the gospel. Or you got to weed out all the worldliness in your life. It's all that bad stuff that you're involved in that's making you unproductive soil. So let's start weeding. Let's get in there and weed out that bad stuff. Well, those might be truthful things, but that's not what this story is about. And we stretch the parable sometimes when we try, to make ap we try to make everything mean something or we try to stretch the metaphor. And so be careful about doing that. There, there actually is a scripture that says plow up your fallow ground, but it's not here. That's not what this is. So what takes away the word? There, the seed, the seed is, is scattered, but it, it gets taken away three times. The path people, it's Satan. We do have an enemy, and it's Satan, and he does not want you to hear and accept and receive the word. And so for these first group of people, he takes it away. The rocky people, what takes it away? Trouble or persecution? This gospel sounds pretty cool, but oh, now the trouble comes, now the persecution comes, there's no root, so I'm going to turn away. In Jesus' own day, he had several fair-weather disciples, people who loved the food, when 5,000 people got fed, they went nuts. They were ready to, to crown him king right then and there. Um, and they liked the miracles. They liked the Jesus show. They liked all the cool stuff that was going on. But then there's this time, it happened more than once, where he gave them some hard teachings. And they, they left. And lots of them left. And he turned to the 12 and said, you guys going to leave too? Um, and so those were like the fair weather disciples. When, you know, they liked the good parts, but when the troubles or persecution came, now they're not, they're not around anymore. And then the thorny people are the ones who get choked out by the worries of life and the deceitfulness of wealth. And that's where I think, that's where I think we live. Um, I don't mean you particularly, but I mean our society. You know, the, we are a very busy, very indulged, very blessed, very wealthy society. And we care a lot about those things. Um, and so, so much that in, in many of our lives or many of our communities, uh, our faith, our church attendance, our response to God becomes sort of a back burner hobby because the really important stuff is the worries of life and the deceitfulness of wealth. And I think that's just kind of the world we live in. Now, I read a commentary by Herschel Hobbes this week. He's a Baptist commentator, so that might let you know a little bit about where he's coming from. It was his theory that the first two groups of these people were never saved. They never received any kind of salvation, that they never accepted the word. He thought the third group the thorny people were actually people who had received salvation but were just unproductive because of their, their trying, trying to live in both worlds. I don't know about that. I'm, I'm not sure I accept his theory, but uh, I thought you'd be interested. In Jesus' day, 
I think the path people who got the things taken away by, uh, the, by Satan, I think they represent the Pharisees in his life. The religious establishment totally rejected him, and, and for the most part. There are a couple exceptions, Nicodemus and, and uh, Joseph of Arimathea, but mostly the religious establishment said no. And I think for him, they're the path people. The rocky people, the fair-weather disciples, and I think he's making the point that in any day, 2,000 years ago and today, the love of money can distract us from discipleship. And that's true. Paul didn't say money's the root of all evil, but the love of money. And, and it's, a, it's all over the Bible. You can't serve both wealth and, and God. So what, what we want to know today is how are we going to be good soil? And there are really three elements. Uh, I'll go back and read it again. Others, like a seed sown on good soil, what do they do? They hear the word, they accept it, and produce a crop. So that's where I want to live. I want to hear, I want to accept, I want to produce. And so how do we do that? Hearing, I think, is one of the hardest things for us today. Why is it so hard for us to hear God? Because we hear so many other things. I live in a noisy world, and I love my noisy world. And I, I, I barge in his iPod, and I like that. I got my own little MP3 player, and I even know how to work it this year. And so I'm really excited about that. And uh, I've got, I listen to books on tape when I'm driving around in the car, when I'm exercising. There's, there's a soundtrack to our lives uh, for most of us, and it's usually pretty noisy. And yet, where is the time in my life where I say, speak to me, Lord, you know, for your child is here listening? You know, we sing that song. I hope worship time is a time of that for us. But when's the time where we kind of turn down the volume on our busyness and, and have a two-way prayer? You know, prayer for so many of us is giving God our kind of religious Santa Claus list. Uh, I got these situations need fixing. I got these sick people I love who need healing. They're, you know, I need some more money. My car's bad. And we give God this list of things that we need him to do for us. And then the time where I think we ought to be praying, Lord, will you direct me? Will you show me your will? Will you give me some direction? I think we've got to stop a little bit and take some time to hear. So I think the hearing, for me, the biggest problem is I just need to stop talking long enough to hear or need to stop listening to other noise long enough to hear. And Gina had told me about a phone conversation she had this week with a, 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 a client who was calling in, and the lady said, will you speak up? I can't hear you. And Gina could hear the lady calling from her car, and the car was outrageously noisy. Their music was loud, and people were talking, and Gina's thinking, well, maybe you should turn down some of your car noise, and then, then, then you'd be able to hear me. Be like, speak up, speak up. And I think sometimes we're like that with God. God, let me know. Tell me. You know, communicate your will to me, and I'll do it. But then, you know, for, in my life, I'm just right on doing the next busy thing and, and, and don't stop and wait to hear. Except, I, I'm preaching to the choir here. I know I'm talking to people who have accepted on faith the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus is your Lord. I recognize that, but that does take a leap of faith. You know, there are times where in our stubbornness or in our, in our, our rationality, you know, believing in the resurrection, that's a hard step to take, or committing to Jesus as Lord in a lifetime where, in a society where our freedom is all important. Those commitments do take a leap of faith. Do you really believe it's gonna be better for you if you live your life according to God's principles rather than if you do what you feel like doing. Now, I learned the hard way that it's better, but some of you have an opportunity to learn that without going through so much pain, and some of you are still working it out. But accepting the truth as the truth, that's a step, and then producing. Here's the thing, I think the encouragement about producing, it's not all about you. 
Sometimes it's going to be about the soil. Sometimes it's going to be about other influences. But how do you produce? Well, if you're the sower, you scatter seed. And how do you scatter it? You scatter it when you can, when you have the opportunity. And is it always going to work out well? No. It looks like three out of four times it might not work out well. But what are you going to do? You're going to keep scattering, and you're going to trust God with the results. Why is this a secret of the kingdom? It's because the Jewish people of this day did not expect their Messiah's message to be so limited in its effectiveness. And that's what the big surprise is for them. You know, they expected the big apocalyptic smackdown that didn't come then. And it's the same thing we expect with the second coming. So what's our application today? Remember, we've got two groups of people in the room. We've got sowers and we've got hearers. Hearers, persevere in obedience. Our response to God, whether I'm good soil or not, it's not going to be measured by how I did today or last week or last month or last year. It's going to be over a lifetime. Persevere in obedience. And sowers, realize it's not all about you. Not everyone who hears the word will accept it. What's your response? Persevere in obedience. Same thing. Let's pray. Lord, we love you, and we thank you for this message. Lord, I thank you for the encouragement. Lord, I thank you that... Lord, I thank you that you give me more than enough encouragement for the day. I thank you for the joy you provide when I get to see um, people uh, producing and reproducing. And, uh, and Lord, I ask that you would help me not to be stubborn about improving, but Lord, help me not to take too much credit or blame um, when the people I love uh, respond in different ways. Lord, help us to, to apply this to our own lives and to walk in your ways. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.